Again, a joy to welcome you today. I want to invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're new with us, we're in a series that's looking at this particular section of the Bible where the writer of this letter is encouraging ancient believers in Jesus who are going through tremendous pressure, tremendous sorrows. Uh, Many have lost their homes, some have been imprisoned, certain leaders have been killed, not to turn back on their faith, but to persevere. And part of the reason for an enduring or persevering faith, for living by faith, is not simply about what takes place in our experience of God now, or our life with God now, but in fact, what he points out to us here has always been the case for God's people, the hope of everlasting life, the future that God's people have. Uh, the future um, is uh, always, uh, you know, something which is, is centered in the word hope. And the whole chapter begins with hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And so part of what it means to have faith, to walk by faith and not by sight, is to realize that the promises of God are experienced by us in terms of fulfillment in a very partial measure now and await a full and rich and complete fulfillment in the age to come. And this is not something which is distinctive or new only to Christian faith. In fact, this is something that all of these people that are mentioned in Hebrews 11 knew well. All the way back to the time of Abel, and Noah, and Abraham, and Sarah, and it is this future hope that the writer of Hebrews picks up on. I want you to read it with me in chapter 11, verse 13. Follow along with me, chapter 11, verse 13. Talking about Abraham and Sarah and all of these who've gone ahead of us, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Predictions are always hard to make, especially with reference to the future. Um... Nobody got that at all. Everybody needs just more coffee. Um, (laughs) In 1900, there was a World's Fair in Paris. And um, an artist uh, was uh, uh, commissioned to draw up pictures, images, um, and they were put on display there at the World's Fair in 1900 about what various... Uh, physicists and scientists and sociologists believe the world would look like in the year 2000. So they made their predictions about 
what life would be like in the 21st century as the 20th century dawned. And some of the, that were in pretty incredible, transatlantic travel in blimp boats was one thing that was predicted. Uh, wing flapping hover cars. Everybody's always predicting flying cars. Uh, I just say move to Boca. People are flying in cars all over the place. One guy predicted domesticated whales for sea travel. Um, Barbers and stylists would be replaced by robots. That just sounds dangerous. Just, just very, very weird. But some of the things were on point. Education systems would see books replaced by technology that reads to students. Video chat was envisioned, and electric trains were as well. So they got a few things right. When it comes to knowing the future, you and I as people of hope, people of vision, people of faith, have a promise from God that knows fulfillment now, but a future fulfillment. The Bible uses this language all the time, now and the not yet. We, beloved, are now children of God. You were singing just a few moments ago. I'm a child of God. There may be many of you this morning who don't feel that you are, but you are. Your experience may be contrary to a sense that God cherishes you, that he delights in you. You may think that God is not pleased with you as his child, that you perhaps have a tenuous relationship with God. But if you have put your faith in Christ and Receive from God his mercy and forgiveness in Jesus. You belong to him. You're his child. You're no longer a slave, but his own child. So John writes in 1 John, beloved, now we are the children of God, but it has not yet appeared what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him. We will see him as he is. So right now, we are the children of God. But right now, do we look like Christ? No. But we will one day, we will be finally fully conformed to the image of Christ. So there is a, an immediate fulfillment, but that immediate fulfillment is partial and it remains to see its fullness come upon us. For instance, if I took a poll here among all of those who would claim the name of Christ and I said, how many of you, just put your hand up, how many of you have already been raised from the dead? What would you say? Yeah, there's about six of you that say yeah. Some of the rest of you are not sure. Some of you are afraid of looking charismatic there for a moment with your hands up. But, but you were saying, well, what do you mean? Well, the scriptures say that God, if you're a Christian, has raised you from death to life. That he has moved you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And yet we also know that in the future there awaits bodily resurrection from the dead at the end of the age, at the, at the full and final day when the, when, the, when the Lord returns, then we will be raised together with him. So there's a certain sense in which we are right now raised from the dead, but there's a fuller sense in which that is yet to come. And that's why right now we live by faith, but that faith has that future in view. We have a faith that is not just concerned with now, it is a faith that is looking to the future. And that's the way Abraham and Sarah lived. They had a faith that wasn't just for that strip of land in the Middle East called Canaan. They knew that Canaan land was only a down payment on a future inheritance that was a heavenly city. 
That's why when you sang a few moments ago, I am bound for the promised land, it didn't mean that you were gonna pack your bags and move to Jerusalem next year. It meant that like Abraham and Sarah, you know that you have a heavenly inheritance. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For Abraham and Sarah, not even that little strip of land that they were to receive as an inheritance would happen for their descendants for another 400 years. But their faith looked even beyond that. It looked into eternity. They saw eternity from a distance. They welcomed it. They greeted it. It's a little bit like if you were at Hard Rock Stadium for a ball game and you saw through your binoculars somebody on the other side of the stadium over there that was at the same game with you but on the other side of the field and with you up there in the nosebleed section with the cheap seats, you saw them all the way over there and uh, maybe they hadn't seen you yet and you stood up and you started waving to them. You could see them, you wanted to greet them, you couldn't be right there with them, you couldn't share the experience together with them, but they were there, you see it, you welcome them, but it's, 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 not, it's not that you're together, just and you see it, you welcome them from afar. Beloved, there are those who we love who are already in the heavenly city, right? We haven't lost them. We still see them. They're from afar, and we welcome as well the promise of God. We greet it. We know that it will one day be ours, and we see it coming to us. It's still in the distance, and this means you and I are a people who live for the fulfillment of that promise. What does that mean? Well, it means we pray into the future. Some of you who are parents pray, say, for a three- or four-year-old child, a daughter or a son, you're already praying for who their spouse is going to be. You're praying for that person. You know that person is known to God. You're praying for them already. You don't know who it is, but you see it in the distance. You see it coming from afar. Many of you are praying and seeking the Lord, not just for what God is doing in his mission in the world right now, but for generations to come. We give into the future as well. When we honor God with our giving, we're honoring something about the future, that God is raising up the next generation. We are living in this faith and passing that faith on to the next generation. We do this with our resources all the time. We do it in the household of faith. We even do it in our own households. We will take what resources we have and we'll, we'll put them into an inheritance for children and grandchildren. We'll do it in such a way that we don't have to pay as much tax and we'll make sure that we can put into their hands as much as, as is right and good and proper so that, so that what we have right now is moving towards the future. We pray into the future. We give into the future. But we also, like the prophets of old, we serve right now for the future. There's a fascinating text over in 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, where Peter talks about the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Samuel and Jeremiah. And he says that the Old Testament prophets, this is 1 Peter 1, 10 and following, he says, as they spoke and prophesied, they made careful inquiry seeking to understand about whom they were speaking. In other words, Isaiah is talking about this lamb who goes silent before its shearers and 
is um, the servant who offers his soul as a ransom for many. And it says that Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these Old Testament prophets were like, who is this about? What are we doing? What do these words mean? And listen to this. It says that God said to them, this service that you are offering right now, Isaiah, Jeremiah, is not for you. Your prophecies are for people who will come much later. You're serving now for those who will come later. You and I tend to get wrapped up in the right now. But the truth is that there is an echo from heaven, a ping, that goes down into the soul of every human person. The writer of Ecclesiastes says that God has placed eternity in the heart of humankind. There is an itch down in the heart that is wanting to be scratched and every person has it. We keep trying to address that eternal, that everlasting, that immortal dimension of who we are. We know there's more to us than meets the eye. We long for something more than we have here but we keep trying to fill it up only with those things that are here. We create, we, we fill it up with uh, intellectual accomplishments. We fill it up with vocational accomplishments. We fill it up with relational accomplishments. And we, we keep trying to make everything right, trying to fill it all up. But every single one of these things leave us short. It doesn't touch the eternal because every one of those things are merely temporal. And so in the middle of longing for the eternal, of longing for the future, we begin to discover that there is something in us that was made for more than we see around us. And that is why, secondly, future faith seeks beyond the familiar. Look at verses 13 through 15 again. These all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. People who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that homeland from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. There is in the heart of every Christian, I'll put it to you this way, a holy homesickness. Have you ever been homesick? Have you ever had that experience, that ache in your heart that where you were in the world was so different from the roots you had that you longed for the familiar. You wanted to get back to where you came from, back to the traditions, back to the patterns, back to the faces and the voices and the accents of where you came from because where you are is so different and so strange. I had that when I was 19 years old and I moved to England. I loved being where I was. I loved being there in Oxford. It was a beautiful city. I loved my studies. I loved everything. I, was, I loved uh, the, 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 the town. I loved the, the little shops and the tea houses. I loved everything about it. And yet, and yet, there was a moment I, I sat down in this little room I had in Divinity Road off the Cowley Road in Headington and I, I cried like a baby. And it wasn't because I didn't like where I was. It's just because in that moment, I missed the familiar. I missed the voice of my parents. I, I, missed, I missed some of the, the stuff on television that I wanted to watch. And I missed some of the familiar food. I missed some of the familiar voices. And there was just that ache. 
and there were tears. But here's the interesting thing about holy homesickness. It isn't about where you came from, it's about where you're going. It's about knowing that there's a city and a homeland that you were made for. You see, friends, we were made for everlasting communion with God. Death was not the original inheritance of the human race. We were made for fellowship with God, but our sin and our rebellion, our high treason against God, our idolatry, our self-idolatry got in the way of that. It cut off communion with God. It alienated us from him. We decided to be our own gods, make our own laws, have our own DIY salvation projects. We could save ourselves. But of course, all of those efforts turned to destruction. We destroyed ourselves. We destroyed our relationships. We destroyed the world. We destroyed everything about our race that God had made beautiful. But God did not leave us in that place. He has always had in his purpose to reunite heaven and earth. And that is why Jesus taught us to pray from the very beginning. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, finish it with me, on earth as it is in heaven. In the end, heaven invades earth. And you and I are raised to life eternal because Christ came and died on the cross to pay the price for our sin and reconcile us to God, and in his resurrection, unite us to him, and send us the Holy Spirit, and bring us from death to life, so that you and I could have communion with God forever. And right now, you and I are doing what the psalmist said. He said, taste and see that the Lord is good. And so you and I, occasionally in this life, we have an experience. We know God's nearness. We sense his delight. We sense his pleasure. And we go, oh man, I, I sense God being with me. I sense his joy. I sense his presence with me. But you could take your greatest experience of God you ever have in this life, and it's only a taste of what's to come. And that is why we still at times feel alone and we feel the presence of darkness. We are, after all, exile people. He says we are, they confess that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You see, along with the holy homesickness for heaven that we have, there's this nagging sense that where we are, no matter how well we construct our lives, no matter how stable we try to make it, we nevertheless don't quite fit in. We keep trying to fit in. We want to be the kids that are sitting at the cool kids' table. We want to be with the in crowd, but we're exiles, we're strangers, we're Daniel, we're Esther, we're people that are a little strange in a strange land. We know we were fitted for eternal life, and that's where we're going. And so here, we need to realize that we will always have that certain sense of not quite belonging. We are exile people. You can't get that comfortable in beautiful downtown Babylon if Zion is in your heart. God has come to you. He's made you his chosen vessel. And that means you aim at heaven. And you are not turning Christianity, reducing it down to something that just has to do with this life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if we think 
that faith in Jesus is for this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And there's a lot of Christian preaching that sounds exactly like that particular terrible sickness of turning the faith into something that's just about this life. Somehow Jesus comes, and if you have Jesus in your life, your life here will just get better. What if I gave an altar call this morning and said, you need to come to Jesus, your life will get worse. That's what happened to these people. They were believers in Jesus. They lost their homes. Some of them were put in prison. Some of them were killed. Their life didn't get easier, it got harder. And so naturally they're thinking, well, maybe I should just give up on the faith. I should go back. That's what Israel had said in the wilderness. You see, between the promise that's given about the promised land, between the Passover and the land, there's a wilderness. We all go through this wilderness. People accuse us of stuff. Somebody will lie about you. You'll have your own sins and the sins of others. You'll go through hardship, whether that's physical or financial or relational. Things you thought were gonna be just right. You thought that if you became a Christian, you could just get everything fixed, as if Jesus was a kind of repair kit that helped you just make your life like, okay, now that I'm a Christian, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get everything stable. I'm, 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 gonna have, I'm gonna have everything in my finances, just gonna be, it's gonna be great. Everything in my relationships, just gonna be perfect. I'm gonna follow the steps and I'm gonna follow the directions and everything, like the Bible's the kind of direction book and if I just do it right, then everything's gonna work. I'm gonna raise my kids exactly like it says in the book and I'm gonna, they're gonna, look at my, my kids are gonna be perfect. And, and, and then what? They're not and you're not, and I'm not, and we're not home yet. And in the wilderness where the trouble breaks out, you can think, I'll just give up, and I'll settle here in Babylon, and I'll go back to being a Babylonian. But that's not what Daniel did, that's not what Esther did. And Abraham and Sarah were looking for a city that has foundations because they could seek beyond the familiar. C.S. Lewis put it this way, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will lose both. And this means you and I savor something which is beyond imagination. Look at verse 16. As it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared for them a city. They desired a better country. They didn't go back. They didn't go, let's go back to Ur of the Chaldees, where we, we knew the language, we knew the customs, they had great education, the restaurants were much better over there in Ur of the Chaldees. Let's go back. No, let's keep living in these tents here in the land of promise. Let's keep living with the instability of tents rather than the palaces of Ur the Chaldees. Every single one of us live in a tent. We're all camping right now. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, talking about our bodies, we have a tent, our bodies. And he says, soon we're gonna fold it up and put it away. But when the, and he says, in this tent we groan. There's groaning that's going on right now. But he says, we'll fold it up one day and put it away, and then we will be clothed with a new home from heaven. That'll have the stability of the kingdom. Right now, everything that can be shaken is being shaken. 
But Jesus is the same yesterday, today, yes, and forever. And that's why you aim at a heavenly city. You see, if, you don't, if you're not looking for a better country, then, then what happens is the country of your dwelling becomes your all in all. People do that. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Again, to take Christianity and make it all about here, what happens is if you stop seeking the heavenly country, you take this country and you turn it into the kingdom. And when you do that, you replace religion with patriotism. And you'll think that only your country can save you, or only your party can save you. You stop thinking about the heavenly city. You stop thinking about the journey of faith that you're on, which is to the kingdom, and it comes. We live right now in temporary dwellings. We are people who are headed for the promised land, and we desire it. Do you desire it? It says they desired a heavenly country. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote about this text, I don't always enjoy something better. Sometimes darkness is my path. I cannot see my Lord. I cannot enjoy his presence. And though it may be a little thing to desire, let me say a good desire is more than nature ever grew. Grace has given it. It is a great thing to be desirous. They desire a better country. And because we desire this better thing, we can't go back and be content with the things that used to gratify us. It says that God has prepared a city for us. And when you read in the book of Revelation about the heavenly city, you will see that there, there is no darkness and every tear is wiped away. You will see that in the city of God, death is no more, it is banished forever. And the light of the face of Christ is the illumination of that place. And this is the city that we are headed for. And that is why right now it is important for us to choose that kingdom as the priority of our desire, the chief place of our joy. C.S. Lewis in The Weight of Glory wrote, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make in the end no difference what you have chosen instead. Those are hard words, but will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism or cocaine or art or whiskey or a seat in the house of commons, money or science, no difference that matters. We shall have missed the end for which we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? My friends, there is an eternal destination that awaits every single person in this room. When I was in Jerusalem, this was one trip about 20 years ago, I was going along the outside wall in a, in a car and there was a sign. It came to a T-junction just outside the old wall. And, there was a, and on the sign, it said Zion's. It said Zion to the right. And to the left, it said Gehenna, which is the word for hell that Jesus used. So I came to the T-junction. I'm sitting in the back seat, Zion or hell? I said to the driver, whatever you do, turn right. <laughs> My friends, you and I are destined for the city of God. But somewhere along the way in this life, by faith, we have to decide that that better country, that heavenly city will be ours. Why can it be ours? Listen to why that city can be yours. 
because Jesus left that city. He left it and came to our city. And here with us, becoming as we are, he took the penalty upon himself. He took upon himself all the hell that we deserved and he bore it in his body on the cross. And when he died, the full penalty of our sin died with him so that you and I do not have to perish. You and I can have everlasting life. And that's why Jesus, when it came down to it, said, beautiful words in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many dwelling places, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that you may be where I am. Jesus came to where we are to take us where he is. And when he said, I'm going to go and get a place ready for you, he was using the language of the ancient Hebrew custom of marriage in that time. A man, if he wanted to marry a gal, had to be able to build her a house. He would go and get a house ready. If he didn't have a house, if he couldn't do a house, he couldn't have a wife. And so the man would go and get the house ready. And then when he had the house ready, they could get married. And all the time he's building the house, the girl is getting herself ready. That's why the book of Revelation says the bride gets herself ready. The bride has made herself ready. And then when the house is ready and the bride is ready, then that groom begins to come from the house that he's gotten ready. And he comes towards the house where the bride is. And in that house where the bride is, she is seated. And then the best man, the friend of the bridegroom, is going ahead of him. And when he's about halfway there, he begins to cry out, the bridegroom cometh, the bridegroom cometh. And then the bridegroom walks in. And that, that bride who's gotten herself ready, she's seated there. And as soon as she sees him, she rises. And she goes with him. And together they go to the house he's been getting ready for them to live in. And I'm telling you, the day is coming when from heaven the shout will be heard, the bridegroom cometh. And Jesus will split the sky and he will come again. And you, the bride of Christ, will rise and we will meet him and we will be with him in his house forever and ever. We are bound for the promised land. Amen? Let's stand together and give thanks to the Lord. Let me pray with us. Lord, we thank you for your great goodness to us. We thank you that you are the bridegroom and we are the bride. Thank you that you cleanse us by the blood of the cross and by the washing of the water of your word. Make us ready for your coming again and remind us today, Lord, that we have a heavenly inheritance, that we have a better country that awaits us, that we have a city that you've prepared for us, that you are not ashamed to be our God that you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are our God. And so, Lord, we put our trust in you. We cannot wait for our heavenly home. Amen.